What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Hi, I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer, one of the voices behind the CNBC podcast Squawk Pod. In these times of uncertainty, we want to make sure we're bringing you, our listeners, as much information as possible as quickly as we can. That's why we're sharing with you now a CNBC special report, Markets in Turmoil. Listen in. Good evening. I'm Scott Wapner on day 172 of the coronavirus crisis. Tonight, why the NFL season might be in jeopardy. You've got to figure out a way how you can keep the game going without sacrificing or risking the health of the players. The nation's top doctor cast doubt on the possibility of a safe football season. The NFL is reacting. Other big sports also having problems convincing players to get back to business, including the NBA. Also tonight... We're not in the post-COVID time. We're in the middle of a COVID-19 pandemic. New rules and regulations on wearing a mask. This CNBC special report begins right now. Here's Scott Wapner. Welcome. It is good to have you with us on this Thursday night. We start with a flag from the nation's top infectious disease doctor warning that a football season might not be possible after all. Dr. Anthony Fauci telling CNN, quote, Unless players are essentially in a bubble, insulated from the community, and they are tested nearly every day, it would be very hard to see how football is able to be played this fall. If there is a second wave, which is certainly a possibility and which would be complicated by the predictable flu season, football may not happen this year. The NBA plans to resume play in Orlando next month in a bubble, but some players still have many concerns tonight. And with us tonight, Sports Corp co-founder, Mark Gannis. Mark's good to see you again. Good to see you, Scott. To the NFL first, and the league is responding to what Dr. Fauci had to say. They say, quote, this is from the chief medical officer, Alan Sills. Make no mistake, this is no easy task. We will make adjustments as necessary to meet the public health environment as we prepare to play the 2020 season. Mark, what's your reaction to this news tonight? Do you think everybody in the NFL league office wants to play the season? Absolutely. Everybody in the league office wants to play. The team owners want to play. The players want to play. The NFL Players Association has been completely in lockstep with the NFL. They've been working hand in glove for months. They brought in experts from around the country, from around the world, the CDC, the White House Task Force. And they have been they've put together a set of protocols that are incredibly detailed and include testing Every day, a saliva test, which they expect will be in place. The PCR test every three days. Uh, they have they've got new equipment that they're developing with some of their equipment companies uh, to uh, for face shields and things of that nature. So they are working on this and have protocols and understand what the situation is. Uh, it's really a bit disappointing to hear Dr. Fauci speak this way for something that's three months in the future. There's a lot more we're going to learn between now and September just as we've learned a lot in the last three months since the virus took root in the country. Do you think, though, that the Fauci comments will change some minds? I mean, this is the nation's top infectious disease doctor, after all. 
You know, it's also the guy who told us in, you know, early on that we did, shouldn't wear masks. So things have evolved over time. Uh, the, the medicine is the data has evolved. The medical advice has evolved. And we're at a point now where you make the best decisions with the information you have and you expect, and you adjust as you get better information. The key here is that you ha they have the best people working with the NFL and the NFL Players Association, and the protocols are incredibly strict. I'm not sure there are going to be any employers in the country that, are, that have uh, protocols as strict as the N NFL has already in place. Well, the NBA has some strict protocols, too. And on that, we're going to welcome in Grant Hill, the NBA Hall of Famer, now the co-owner of the Atlanta Hawks. Looks like he's joining us from his automobile this evening. Grant, it's good to have you back uh, on the program. Hey, I'm glad to be back. Thanks for having me. We're, uh, we're obviously started off talking by the, uh, about the NFL, but as I said, the NBA has a number of issues, it seems, as well. 113 pages of new rules, according to the, uh, the New York Times, regarding what the season would be like down in the bubble of, of Orlando. What's your general sense as to, as to whether players really want to make this season happen? Well, you know, I think by and large, I, I think a majority of the players uh, certainly want to come back. They want to play. Um, you know, uh, I think they understand, um, you know, the opportunity here and, and certainly sports can, can, you know, be something that uh, can help as we get through some some challenging times. Uh, I know I've talked to a number of guys and by and large, you know, basketball players want to play. Uh, I think obviously right now trying to digest and process some of these guidelines and some of these protocols, this is obviously going to be unusual uh, this is going to be something that takes a minute to, to really fully understand the depth of it and what you're committing to. So I, I think that's part of the reservation that exists right now, and understandably so. But, you know, this is not going to be easy for the NBA, for, uh, for the players, for coaches, for training staffs, for all that are involved in the traveling party. Uh, and I think it's important that they have this sort of open dialogue to get to a point where everyone is comfortable uh, with what what the plan is moving forward. Has your perspective, Grant, changed moving from the, the court to the, the ownership suite, so to speak? Do you see things differently because of the position you're now in? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I do see things differently. I have a greater uh, respect and appreciation for uh, all the moving parts that, that work together to put this league, to, uh, you know, to have this league, you know, run and be a great success. I also have a, a tremendous amount of respect in terms of the difficult decisions that are that are made sometimes on a daily basis in a normal pre-COVID environment, uh, which have only been sort of magnified now uh, these last three months. Uh, but yeah, but I, I'm still a player. I still think like a player. Uh, I think within uh, our you know governors and, and certainly within our organization with the Atlanta Hawks, I, I can offer the perspective player. Uh, but I, I do. I, I think as a player, sometimes you just, you know, you just focus in on what you need to do on the court uh, and, and, and what you can bring to the table along with your teammates. Uh, now you get a chance to see, you know, the business side and certainly what you can bring from a, a strategic vision uh, standpoint, resources, uh, all the, you know, all that leadership necessary to run and operate an organization. So, uh, yes, I have a whole new respect for uh you know, for the work that goes on from from a governor's standpoint. I bet. And Mark, I mean, you know, the inner workings of these leagues as well as anybody. It really is a delicate balance that that has to be played here. We're talking about 
player safety. And, and let's be honest, there was a time where the NFL was criticized for not caring enough about the safety of its players. Is it opening up itself to those sort of arguments once again? You know, it's one of the best things that has happened from this whole process, Scott, is to watch the NFL, the NFL Players Association and their medical experts work so closely together. Uh, this is this is a, one of the byproducts of this covid disaster that we've had here in the country to watch these two um, groups that have previously actually had problems with each other. We can be frank about that. And they're working absolutely together with each other. And they're not even they're not just focused on the players and the coaches. They're also focused on the players, families who they go home to uh, protocols. If they have people at home who are older or have comorbidities, they're really focused on the entire ecosystem of the NFL and the people that are a part of it, the players very especially. The nation starving for sports, uh, that's for sure. I, I hope it, uh, it all comes off. Grant Hill, I appreciate you being here so much. Mark Gannis, it's nice to see you again as well. Sure. Thanks, Scott. Thank you. Talk Thank to both you. of you again soon. Dr. Scott Gottlieb is a CNBC contributor, the former commissioner of the FDA. Dr. Gottlieb, welcome back. So maybe the, the NFL season is now hanging in the balance. What's your reaction to what Dr. Fauci had to say today? Well, I don't think the season's hanging in the balance. I think that there's a way that these sports teams can play. It's going to be difficult, and part of it's going to depend on just what the prevalence is. If we have a raging epidemic in the fall, the situation might be a little different. But these, these leagues have endless resources to throw at this, and I think that there's a way to create a protective bubble around the players. They can test the players in. They can test them quite regularly. They can implement procedures in the, in the clubhouse and how the players interact that can reduce the risk of an outbreak on a team. I think the hardest aspect of this for them is going to be controlling the player behavior off the field. So making sure that players aren't putting themselves in situations where they can be exposed to the virus off the field. But inside the clubhouse and on the field, I think they can control the environment sufficiently that they can dramatically reduce the risk that you get an introduction and certainly reduce the risk that an introduction leads to an outbreak in, in a team, in a clubhouse. So I think that there's a way that these leagues can get these games started. Um, and the NFL seems to have put a lot of resources and thinking into this. And so I would suspect that they'll be able to pull it off. Even if the NFL isn't going to the, the bubble so to speak, practice that that basketball is. Basketball is bringing everybody down to Orlando, keeping everybody together in, in one particular place. The NFL doesn't have a plan to do that. These teams are going to stay in their cities. The players are going to be in their homes and around the f facilities. Is that a more dangerous prospect? Well, it's a little harder. Um, and that's why I said what's going to be difficult is controlling behavior off the field. Um, they can test people into the clubhouse and control um, risk on the field and in the clubhouse. And so they need to have protocols in place for what the players are willing to do in their personal lives as well in terms of not going out, reducing their risk of exposure in their daily lives. I assume the players are going to be willing to, um, you know, agree to such plans because they want to play. Most of these players want to play. They have a short, um, you know, short life expectancy, if you will, on the field. Their careers are short and they don't want to give up a whole season. So I suspect most of the players are going to be willing to enter into agreements where they um, submit to do certain things that will reduce their risk of contracting the virus during the season. And again, that may change. The NFL may have to readdress that in terms of what the players do off the field if there's a high prevalence, if we really do have um, large epidemics or outbreaks in the fall. But those things can be adjusted. There's ways to do this. So I, I wouldn't give up on the NFL season. I certainly wouldn't give up on the NBA season. Um, they're going to look a lot different, but there's ways to get these games started right. and get people watching sports again. All right. Good news to hear that. Let, let's talk now where we are nationally. You said today that some states are on the verge of, quote, losing control of their outbreaks. Of all of the outbreaks, Dr. Gottlieb, that we're seeing right now, 
Which is the one that's most concerning to you tonight? Well, probably Arizona, because they're coming up against their health care resources in the state and they're going to have to start activating some of the surge capacity. And then you look at states that really don't have a lot of good controls in place, um, Alabama, South Carolina, uh, Florida and Texas are also concerning. I think that uh, they have more resources and they've been a little bit more aggressive from the outset. Uh, but they have big numbers right now. Texas and Houston and Austin have pretty big numbers of infections and they're rising um, quite quickly. One of the things you need to look at over the next week or so, probably next couple of days, next week, is the pace of the increases. If you start to see day over day increases that are very big as positivity rates continue to increase, that's a pretty good indication that you have pretty widespread community transfer underway. Some are calling Florida the new epicenter. I'm, I'm wondering if you agree with that. Right now, they only have 25 percent of their ICU beds available. Yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't say that Florida is in a worse bucket than any of these other states that we're talking about. I think they all have outbreaks underway. The outbreaks are regional inside these states. And so there's certain parts of the states that are hot right now. Florida has more epicenters, if you will. Miami-Dade looks hot. Palm Beach, um, Orlando, um, parts of uh, near like Jacksonville, a little bit in the sort of center of the state. So there's parts of that. There's more parts of that state that look like they have outbreaks underway. They still have a window of opportunity to get it under control. I think all these states do. But but, you know, you continue to see growth in cases and you're not seeing really decisive action yet. So that has to be concerning. President gave a interview uh, this evening, late this afternoon to The Wall Street Journal, in which he said testing was overrated. Um, testing obviously leads to higher cases. I'm wondering what you make of that comment, given that you were a member of the administration. Well, really, all we have to uh, keep a major epidemic from happening in the fall, which I think there's a possibility we will have a major epidemic of COVID in the fall, is uh, testing, contact tracing, uh, universal masking. If we don't want to shut down the economy again, I think we're going to be very reluctant to do that, especially in advance of a political um, election, national election. We really have to fall back on the ability to get people tested very quickly and have people self-isolate when they're infected. And most people will be compliant. Most people will self-isolate. And so there's nothing else. I don't know what else we can fall back on besides trying to get as many people diagnosed as possible, get them into care as quickly as possible, and require people to wear masks when they're out in the public to reduce the risk of transmission. Um, that's really it. That's our toolbox. And if we don't do that, then we might as well just throw up our hands and accept that we're going to have a major epidemic. The hospital systems are going to come very pressed in the fall. And I think healthcare workers are going to start to pull back. They're not going to want to work in a system where they're not being helped by the political leadership. But when people hear you say that, that some states are on the verge of, of losing control uh, of the outbreaks, that sounds to me as though you're maybe more concerned than you have been in weeks about the state of this country and dealing with this outbreak of this virus. Well, when we say when I say lose control, I mean, have to really reach back to mitigation steps that they're going to be very reluctant to do, shutting down things again. Um, you know, the population wide mitigation that we just went through for the last two or three months, which no one wants to reach back to again. I think their window of opportunity to use more finely tuned interventions, getting people diagnosed, getting people into self-quarantine, voluntary self-quarantine getting people wearing masks on a regular basis to cut transmission rates, their window of opportunity for those tools to be effective is slipping away from them. Um, because once they get past a certain number of cases, they're just not going to be able to keep up. And they're, they're getting close to that point right now in some of these dense cities like Austin, like Houston, like Miami-Dade. I don't think they've missed that opportunity yet, but the states are having a hard time implementing these measures. In a state like Texas, where the governor doesn't have a lot of control over the individual counties, 
um, it's a little bit more difficult. I'd like to ask you one more question before we take a break, and you're going to stay with us on the other side of that. But there's a new study today, albeit a small one, that suggests antibodies may only last for a few months in asymptomatic people. I know you've taken a look at this because you tweeted about it. What are your thoughts? Well, it was only 37 patients, and what it showed was there were two kinds of antibodies you develop, and one seemed to wane, if you will, um, in certain patients, particularly patients who are asymptomatic. Um, I wouldn't make too much of it because you're going to have other kinds of immunity. You're going to have cell-based immunity, T cells and me- what we call memory B cells that will be reactivated in the setting of the virus. I think most people who have this infection, whether they're symptomatic or asymptomatic, should expect that they're going to have a period of immunity that's at least going to last through the next phase of this, which is going to be the fall, until we get to the other side of that and have a vaccine. All right. I mentioned Dr. Gottlieb. You stay with us. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. We'll come back with more straight ahead on this CNBC special report. The Great American Mask Debate. New rules and new controversies coast to coast. Next. Plus, one amazing story. See how this 16-year-old is making a market and pitching in when help is needed most. First, our country on Thursday night, June 18th. big idea that's inspired countless new ones from powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives 30 years ago state street launched the spider s&p 500 etf spy a big idea that inspired the world to invest differently and still does what can you do with spy before investing consider the funds investment objectives risks charges and expenses visit ssga.com for a prospectus containing this and other information read it carefully before investing spy is subject to risks similar to those of stocks all etfs are subject to risk including possible loss of principal alps distributors inc distributor Welcome back on day 172 of the crisis. Here are some more headlines on the virus tonight. New York Governor Andrew Cuomo is considering a quarantine for anyone coming into New York from Florida. McDonald's planning to hire more than a quarter million workers over the summer. And sandwich chain Subway says its North American franchisees will hire about 50,000 workers as the restaurant industry looks to recover. Retail shopping malls can reopen in New Jersey at half capacity on June 29th. And AMC says all of its U.S. theaters will be reopened by July 24th. It's been two weeks since Nevada reopened casinos. Reports now showing there's been an increase in coronavirus infections since that reopening. The Nevada Gaming Control Board deciding last night to require face masks at table games that don't have partitions. Sandra Morgan is Nevada Gaming Control Board chairwoman and executive director with us once again tonight. Chairwoman Morgan, it's good to have you back. Thanks for having me back. Scott. Why, good to be here. why the decision uh, made as it was today? You know, well, as you mentioned, we've been open for two weeks now. And during that first week, our board agents were out at all properties in both in northern and southern Nevada and noticed a good percentage of patrons actually wearing face coverings. Unfortunately, we saw the number of patrons wearing those face coverings decline in the last week. And um, when you think about it, you have dealers who are actually standing there for at least an hour at a time um, with multiple people around them and obviously other spectators and others wanting to watch the game. And it was concerning to have a dealer standing there 
potentially being exposed to someone without a face covering for over 15 minutes or so, um, knowing that they're there for over an hour. And so when we saw the number of patrons wearing face masks declining, obviously consulted with medical professionals regarding the CDC guidance that came out on June 4th, um, we decided that it would be in, in the best interest of the gaming employees and to ensure that our cases um, stay down to have a mask be required at table games if there's not going to be plexiglass or other partitions there. I think the, the obvious question is, what did you expect and why wasn't this just done from the start? You know, we um, expected and initially required that all masks be strongly encouraged and a lot of the licensee plans that we received um, reaffirmed that. And like I mentioned, opening um, for the first week, um, there was good compliance with that. But I think people started getting comfortable and people started not wearing masks. And so we also strengthened the policy with regard for licensees to not only just have them available um, but not for purchase, but actually be able to provide the patrons masks upon request and having signage across their properties and actually physically offering those masks to people as they come onto the casino property. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious. Do you know what percentage of tables at casinos in the state don't have partitions? How many places are we talking about tonight? I do not know the actual percentage of those. Some, some properties actually had partitions at a couple of tables and not others to see if it would be something that patrons would like. Um, but at this point, um, being two weeks in, Regardless if you have a partition, um, we knew that masks were some type of barrier for employees, and not just from employees to the patrons, but among the patrons themselves, uh, was definitely going to be required, um, unfortunately, just due to people not wearing masks. Would you, would you consider scaling back any of your openings, uh, mandating closures if cases continue to increase even with these new precautions? We definitely don't want to have another closure. You know, um, we tried to find a phased and incremental reopening uh, pursuant to the governor's directive to try to slowly re rebuild our economy. As you know, it was the first time that gaming was ever shut down in Nevada. So I don't think anybody wants to get to that point, but these measures are going to be put in place um, so that we do not continue to grow. As of today, we still have a 5.2% percentage rate, percentage positive rate, which is pretty good for Nevada. Um, but as you know, in Arizona, um, there was actually a casino closure and we don't want to get to that point. We want to make sure our employees stay safe and that our patrons stay safe as well. So that's why we decided to take some additional steps yesterday. Can you give us an idea just broadly how it's been going since the casinos opened for business, what the crowds have been like? Actually, the numbers are pretty good. Um, we have some properties that have occupancy rates up to 60 and 70 percent. And so people are coming back, um, I will say, um, in, in larger percentages than we actually expected. Um, the amount of air travel coming into Las Vegas is actually looking good throughout the summer. And so people, I think, are, are ready to come back and want to um, probably get away because they've been at home for so long, but they need to do it safely so that we can continue to stay open. Wish you the best. Sandra Morgan, appreciate your time once again tonight. We'll talk to you again soon. All right. Well, across the U.S., masks are becoming the norm, but Nebraska's governor, Pete Ricketts, does not want them to be a requirement. He's telling local governments they won't receive federal funds if they force people to wear masks. The opposite taking place in California today, where Governor Gavin Newsom ordering all Californians to wear face coverings in public comes when we are witnessing a surge in COVID-19 cases, as we've said. Across the country, we bring back in Dr. Gottlieb. Such a polarizing issue, Dr. Gottlieb. Uh, masks have, have become your reaction first now to what Las Vegas is saying about casinos, Nevada statewide, that don't have these partitions, that everybody has to wear a mask. Well, look, it's hard to envision um, a higher risk sort of recreational activity than opening an indoor casino right now in this setting. I mean, it's got to be up there. And that's why a lot of states made decisions not to open their casinos, including Connecticut, the state that uh, I'm in right now. Um, you have an indoor setting, confined space, people close together, people, you know, not practicing 
um, good techniques as they gamble, as they drink and, and, and recreate in these settings. And so these are high-risk activities. And the risk isn't just to Las Vegas. It's to the entire country because they're bringing people from all over, putting them in a congregate setting, and then sending them back to their local communities. And so um, I think it's prudent that they you know, try to take precautions like requiring masks in these settings. Um, I think it was imprudent that they didn't at the outset. Um, but it might not be enough, given the risk of the environment. Well, what about just enforcing masks more, more strictly um, all across this country, regardless of how politically polarizing this issue has become? What difference would it make if everybody, Dr. Gottlieb, was wearing a mask, for example? Well, it's first of all hard to understand why this became politically polarizing. It shouldn't be. I mean, we should have a vested interest in making sure that we can reduce the risk of an epidemic heading into the late summer and the fall. Um, There's a lot of evidence now that if you have universal masking, you can reduce the uh, transmission to a point where you have a contracting epidemic rather than an expanding epidemic. And in fact, countries that did have universal masking fared pretty well. And I don't think it was just coincident. You look at Japan, South Korea, Singapore, Hong Kong. Um, certainly when China implemented it, and they, they had a dramatic decrease in their epidemic and have been able to cr- really crush their epidemic. I don't know that we're ever going to get to those levels in this country, but we can certainly get levels up and certainly make this you know, part of public virtue, going out and wearing a mask and not make this a political activity. I, it's a really unfortunate that it breaks down along sort of ideological lines. It really shouldn't. There's not much we can do collectively to reduce the risk of major transmission short of wearing masks. And the final point I'd say is, Quality of masks matter. The masks aren't just to protect other people from you. That's what we messaged early on. They're also to protect you. And any kind of mask will offer you some level of protection. But if we can get higher quality masks into the hands of people, that's going to afford them more protection. Certainly people who are at high risk, senior citizens. I mean, if I was a physician with extra masks right now and I had patients who I knew were uniquely vulnerable, I would try to get them those higher quality masks if I could. And there should be excess supply coming into the market to be able to do that. Okay, it's an interesting point you make, and it is the subject of our first tweet, uh, which is a perfect segue. Uh, the question, are N95 masks still being diverted to frontline healthcare workers? Why aren't they more widely available by now? They're becoming accessible. There are sites that sell them direct to consumers, not the exact same ones that are sold in a medical setting, but, but high-quality N95 masks. I think we're going to see that supply increase. Right now, what's happening is states are stockpiling them, hospitals are stockpiling them, and so is the federal government. So there's a lot of supply in the market, but it's being stockpiled right now in anticipation of the fall. It's uh, summer, just the cusp of the summer, obviously. Some, though, Dr. Gottlieb, thinking about the fall. Should toddlers and school children get antibody tests before the school year begins? When will we know more answers about immunity? Does it exist and for how long? Well, immunity exists if you've been infected. I think you can say on average it probably exists for a year. It certainly exists long enough to get us to the point where we're going to have a vaccine available. Uh, Your immunity will last through the next wave of this epidemic, uh, if you will. I don't see a lot of utility in getting kids tested unless you have a specific reason you think it was in your household. And also, if you're going to get a test and you have a positive result and you want to rely on that, you should get it replicated. And you should get it replicated by a different kind of test. So if you go out and you get the Abbott test and you're positive on the Abbott test, then go and validate that with the Roche test. And that's actually the advice of FDA as well right now. Stay with the conversation of kids for our last question. I'm in New Jersey. Camp's reopening. Uh, My child's seven and has mild asthma. She's scheduled to start camp in a few weeks. Is it worth it? If not now, what about the end of July or August? Well, it's 
not going to get better in July and August than it is right now. If you look at a state like New Jersey, infection rates have come down quite dramatically. I think you have to look at the procedures that camps putting in place. Day camps are certainly a higher risk environment. You have a lot of people coming and going. I know some camps have put in place pretty extraordinary procedures in terms of keeping uh, campers separated, masks on counselors, things like that. And so, you know, if you feel confident about the procedures they're taking, it's doable. Um, but I think it's a little bit of a higher risk environment. Well, I've asked you before on this program, you said you wouldn't send your own children to a day camp. I wouldn't. Um, I felt that you had more opportunity to create a protective bubble in a sleepaway camp than a day camp, again, because a lot of people are coming and going in a day camp, and you can't control what happens outside that camp setting. So I do think it's a higher-risk setting. All right. Dr. Gottlieb, appreciate it. Once again, I'll catch up with you next week. That's Dr. Scott Gottlieb, a CNBC contributor, of course, a former head of the FDA. Here's what's coming up next on this CNBC special report. Another sign of big city trouble. Wait until you see what's happening to rents in the most expensive city in the country. And meet a 16-year-old who found a way to fill some serious inefficiencies in the market for personal protective equipment and just about everything else. That's two minutes away. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Another big problem for America's big cities in the era of coronavirus. Plus, this 16-year-old's amazing mission and path to success. This CNBC special report continues. Once again, here's Scott Wapner. Welcome back. San Francisco, one of the most expensive real estate markets in the country. But as more people move out and break their leases, the apartment vacancy rate in that city is now above 6%. James Wavro is the managing broker of J. Wavro Associates in San Francisco, joins us tonight. It's good to see you. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me, Scott. Put us on the ground in San Francisco. What are you seeing from your perspective? Well, definitely we're seeing some impact on inventory due to people losing their jobs, um, being relocated out of the area. So we've seen some increases in inventory. Um, It's actually kind of interesting. We've seen a little bit of a shuffle. Uh, We've seen some people that have had to move out of the city, so we've seen some inventory increases, a lot of which are down in our downtown area where, where there's a lot of new buildings that have uh, smaller spaces. And we've seen some internal churn where people are moving into some of the older neighborhoods in order to uh, get a little more space for their home office or you know the work from home uh, situation. What does it mean for the market longer term in San Francisco, which obviously was such a and is uh, a hot place to be, though real estate prices have always been really high? Yes. Uh, you know, and, uh, you know, for rentals, we we've for almost my whole career been fighting a low interest rate environment, you know, which is kind of 
while still expensive, uh, kept rents, you know, relative to sale prices, pretty attractive um, if you're just here for a short period of time. So I think, you know, I've been waiting for a while to see my market start to really improve and achieve some parity with the sales market. Uh, so uh, hopefully, you know, once the economy gets back going and, uh, you know, we start to adjust to some of the new industries that are going to be created from this work at home environment, uh, we'll start to see a nice little uh, rebound. Does this feel like a longer lasting trend, though? It's under the, I, sort I, of the subject of urban flight, a, a conversation we've had uh, on this program quite often. People leaving big cities for the suburbs and thus the real estate market declines. Prices uh, ultimately come down. You know, I haven't really sensed a lot of that in my world, you know, in rentals, um, you know, I haven't really felt like any kind of mass exodus out of the city. I, I, I feel like, you know, there was some people, there's definitely been a core group of people that have been impacted by the, the COVID shutdowns, businesses, uh, you know, closing. Uh, but I don't feel like uh, there's a mass panic to leave the city. I mean, you know, let's face it, it's San Francisco. It's a great place to live. So you think it's going to be a short term phenomenon? I anticipate that it'll probably take us, you know, um, almost a, probably a year to kind of work through some of this excess inventory. Uh, but I expect that as long as there's nothing that derails us um, and the economy uh, starts to get moving again, probably by, you know, next May, next June, this time next year, uh, we'll have paired away some of that inventory and start to uh, start to solidify the market. Uh, we'll be watching closely, see what happens. James, appreciate your time. That's James Wavro joining us tonight from out on My the pleasure. West Coast. We're also tonight meeting a Georgia 16-year-old who saw an opportunity in the need for personal protective equipment. 16-year-old Wesley Ross has sold more than 52,000 masks so far. He joins us live tonight. Wesley, it's great to have you on the show. Hey, thank you for having me on. Yeah, I don't know what I was doing at 16, but it wasn't certainly what you're doing. I'm so impressed with your story. How did this all happen? Uh, so I kind of got into selling the face mask after I saw a, a big need for them after the whole start of lockdown and things like that, where businesses were looking to reopen, but there was a kind of deficit for PPE that's available to the public. Um, so I found a manufacturer in China who I worked with previously on a few other business deals where they, you know, they had a stock that was still left over due to things kind of slowing down in Wuhan, and they wanted to supply them to me. Uh, and, and in turn, you know, I'd make a, a profit off of it and kind of help them get rid of their stock. So we moved into that business together. And since then, I kind of just rolled them one by one. I'm, I mean, it's stunning, too, the, the, the price that you negotiated with this company. Tell us about that, how much you were paying for each mask at a time where we were hearing about prices going up by huge amounts that states were having trouble finding them. And if they did, they had to pay so much more than normal. Yeah, so I absolutely hated the price that I mean, so many people were paying for them. I mean, you heard of people paying seven, eight, ten times the regular price. And, you know, it was, it was a lot to do with price gouging. I mean, for my supplier, I was just getting them for 41 cents a piece, which was pretty normal for, you know, the time. And I, I wasn't charging way over the price um, in comparison to a lot of suppliers and manufacturers. And I feel like that's kind of built that trust between me and a lot of people was, you know, I'm not really here to kind of drag the money and drain the money out of citizens and people like some companies. You, you mentioned you already had a relationship with this manufacturer in, in China. Maybe it's fair to say you're a serial entrepreneur because you have, what I read, 10 businesses. 
And your mom said you had your first business at the age of seven. How in the world is that possible? <laughs> yes. And what was it at age seven that you did? Yes. Yeah, so at the age of seven years old, I, I started selling handmade soap and bracelets uh, to teachers and students at my um, elementary school. Um, and I mean, I, it, was, it was really fun. Since then, I've kind of moved into more serious things, uh, such as auto parts, um, the whole North Star dynamics, and I'm working on an electric motorcycle startup now. Did anybody help you with this current business in, in obtaining the, the, uh, the, the PPE, or did you do all of that yourself? Yeah, so I do all of this uh, myself from my home office, or not really home office, it's more just my desk in my room, but they don't need to know about that. Um, but it's, it's a lot of me just kind of sitting in my room, sending emails, talking on the phone, and just rolling it off. Wow. Where's Wesley Ross going to be 10 years from now? What do you want to do? So 10 years from now, I, I see myself at the, uh, at the top. You know, I, want, I know exactly what I want to do with my life. I know exactly where I want to go. And, you know, I'll do anything to get myself there. And I've taken the kind of early steps of getting myself to that point where, you know, I can work and kind of manage everything in my life because I know exactly the goals and dreams I want to achieve in my age. And I mean, I will I will work, work, work and work in order to get myself there. I don't think anybody's going to doubt that. Do, Do you have a mentor, somebody you've looked up to over the years that you aspire to be like? So I guess one big person who's kind of been a major factor in my life is uh, his name is Errol Rudd. He's the owner of Zero 3D, which is a motorcycle parts company in Wisconsin. Um, and we became friends in summer of last year. And since then, he's kind of been like the pushing force and the driving factor in everything I do. He, uh, he constantly pushes me along to be better, do better. I mean, he's 28 years old. He drives a Lamborghini, lives in a nice house, things like that. And so he's kind of been... He's kind of been the person I look up to and I want to be like by the time I'm that age. And he's really pushed me along to kind of do better, be better, and grow my business as a whole. All right, Wesley, we're going to follow your story for certain. I I hope that we meet again. Super impressed with everything that you're doing. Congratulations and best of luck to you. Yeah, thank you so much. All right. There's a lot more ahead on this special report. Coming up. The mess left behind. PPE in general is that it's made out of plastic that is not recyclable. See who's stepping up. Plus, a hockey star turns to horse racing. What horse racing's Triple Crown looks like in the age of coronavirus. First, our world on the 172nd day of the global pandemic. Horse racing takes center stage this weekend as the Belmont Stakes kicks off the Triple Crown. You may remember Eddie Olchek as a Stanley Cup winning hockey star. He also happens to be a horse racing expert and an analyst with NBC Sports. Edzo is with us now. Eddie, welcome. Thanks, Scott. Nice to be with you. Yeah, it, it, it's good having you. So help me understand how this is going to go. 
What was normally last and the longest in the Triple Crown <laughs> series is now the first and the shortest. Yeah, yeah. Well, look at we're, you know, the 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 world that we are all living in has affected us all in in, in a lot of different ways, and it it in the in. And horse racing is not immune to this. The, the sport, for the most part, has been shut down in a lot of jurisdictions, but there have been racetracks that have been running. But for the Triple Crown, I think that the powers that be, uh, Scott, got it right by pushing back everything, uh, having the Belmont uh, shorten their distance, because these three-year-old horses are not ready to run a mile and a half right now like they usually are. Uh, you know, in early June, but it's going to be the first jewel of the Triple Crown. We'll have uh, a couple of months off, and then we'll be in Kentucky and Louisville for the first Saturday of May for the Derby, and then a month later we'll be in Baltimore for the Preakness at Pimlico. So, look, at I, I think that it was the right thing to do to shorten the race at the Belmont goal first, and uh, nice to see everybody in horse racing uh, working together to make sure the equine athletes are taken care of, and, and uh, hopefully we can entertain a little bit on Saturday with our NBC coverage yep. from uh, from Belmont and all across the country, because I get to work from home on Saturday. I'll be working from my basement and uh, looking forward to being a part of the broadcast. Yeah, I'm looking forward to watching. It looks like we have 10 horses right now. Yep. Um, yep. Is there a horse, Eddie, that would have no chance in your mind if we were the longest and the last, but now has every chance in the world to win this race because it is the shortest? Fair question. Uh, I think that probably the best way to put it, Scott, would be Tis the Law, who is the eight horse, is the favorite. Um, I don't know if he would. I don't know if he could go a mile and a half. I think his best distance is a mile and an eighth to a mile and a quarter. If the race was a mile and a half, I don't think that I would bet him or wager on him. But since it is a mile and an eighth and he is going so well right now, and a New York bred, by the way, running in the Belmont, trying to do something that no New York bred has ever done, uh, I would say that because of the way the races have fallen and they shorten this race, that tis the law certainly would be at the top hmm. of that list with that question. Interesting question. Uh, I like four left, and if you saw my golf game, you would understand <laughs> why I picked four left at the 30-1 to one long shot. But who do you like? Who are you picking? Well, look, it's going to be hard to go against tis the law now. In, in the business world, um, most people on Wall Street wouldn't mind turning a three to five shot into you know, making investing $5 and getting back $8 in a minute and 48 seconds. So if you add a few zeros to that, I think everybody would be super happy considering what's gone on at the economy over the course of the last little while. But how do you turn a three to five into maybe a seven or an eight to one shot? And I think you have to use a nine horse doctor post uh, underneath uh, a horse that's owned by Vinny Viola, also the owner of the Florida Panthers of the National Hockey League. So as a handicapper and as a gambler, you try to look for value and you're going to invest and you're going to try to turn in your investment from a, you know, a $10 investment and hopefully turn a profit of 70 or $80. So I'm going to be using the eight and nine horses and a lot of the wagers I'm having. So, uh, it's going to be hard to beat tis the law, but if you are going to bet, you're going to turn that $5 win bet into eight or nine. And certainly that's not a bad investment. Interesting. Vinny Viola, of course, well known to, uh, to our viewers. And speaking of yep. hockey, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you, uh, obviously I can't wait to, to hear you and, and, and Doc Emmerich back calling some games. What do you make of the plan to get back to play? Do you think it'll actually happen? Well, we hope so. There's still a lot of hurdles to cross, and hopefully we can all, uh, as a society, Scott, get on the right side of this pandemic. But I, I, I think the National Hockey League, the Players Association, the leadership of the commissioner, Mr. Bettman, Gary Bettman, and Bill Daly, the deputy commissioner, 
They've done an amazing job of being out there when need be. Questions to be answered, they've been there. When there's been nothing, they've been silent. They've gone about their business with the return to play committee, with the NHL Players Association, the Board of Governors. They've, they've done a really masterful job of how they've handled it. Now the questions are, what happens if a player or players get sick? What's going to happen? All those type of things, they're trying to get through those. But at least there's a plan. There's some hope out there and hopefully give entertainment to the greatest fans in all of professional sports, our hockey fans right across North America. And hopefully we'll get back and hopefully I'll get back to working with Doc, whether he's in one locale and I'm another, Scott, I don't know what's going to happen, but looking forward to getting back on our NBC hockey coverage on, on, on all the different networks. We are, we are as well uh, in the basement, but still it's the Belmont. Eddie, we'll look for you this weekend. Thanks, Scott. Appreciate it. All right, you take care. That's Eddie Olchek joining us. Do not miss the first race of the Triple Crown this Saturday, as we said, on NBC Sports, starting 2.45 Eastern Time. All that personal protective equipment is saving lives, but causing a new problem, pollution. An innovative solution, and tonight's Restaurant Shoutouts is next. Around the world, the coronavirus pandemic is causing a rise in PPE waste. Discarded gloves and masks now polluting the nation's oceans and sewer systems. Here's how one resident of Miami is stepping up to help. I went to, you know, for a walk. That's how we usually do it. Just go for a walk, bring your picker, your gloves, your masks. And uh, I found 52 gloves in only two blocks. Pretty scary to hold that. And so that's when my worry really began. And I said, we have to push the glove challenge. The glove challenge is go outside and see a glove, snap a shot, share it on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter with their friends. So people would start thinking about it twice. The biggest issue with uh, litter gloves and PPE in general is that it's made out of plastic that is not recyclable and not biodegradable. And so that just makes it right there really, really bad for our environment. Just from our organization and friends, we have picked up over a thousand gloves since the glove challenge started. And it's just around Miami Beach. It was honestly crazy. I didn't think it was going to leave Miami Beach. And out of nowhere, I saw articles coming from Russia, coming from Poland, Hungary, even Southeast Asia. It's an amazing feeling and what we want is to make our oceans cleaner, our cities cleaner, and just educate people. And Maria tells CNBC she estimates her volunteers have cleaned up more than four tons of trash from the coastline since her organization started just one year ago. Time now for the five restaurants in our nightly shout out to those operating in the face of the crisis. Miss Ollie's in Oakland, California, Organically twisted in Naples, Florida, Tucson's Southwest Grill and Bar in Green Bay, Wisconsin, Fats Chicken and Waffles in Seattle, and the Gossip Shack in Austin, Texas. You can tweet me at Scott Wapner CNBC with the hashtag thanks for the grub with the name and town of your favorite restaurant. Send us a picture as well. Do our best to get it on TV. On day 172 of the coronavirus crisis, here are the latest headlines tonight. Another one and a half million Americans filing for unemployment last week. Stocks ended mixed. For all of us at CNBC, I'm Scott Wapner. Have a great night. Be safe. Shark Tank is next. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, 
No one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.